We are nearing the end of our sermon series through Genesis chapters 1 through 3. This morning we'll be reading Genesis chapter 3 verses 14 through 21 before we read the word of the Lord. Let us turn to the Lord and ask him to bless the reading and proclaiming of his word. Let us pray together. God of love and power, you are revealed to us in your word. In accounts of prophecy and fulfillment that direct our attention to Jesus Christ. Illumine us now as we hear your word proclaimed by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we may open our hearts to him, that we may yearn for his coming in glory, and that we may serve him with joy. We lift this prayer in the name of Jesus. Amen. The word of the Lord. It is written, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because You have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I pointed out that the first doctrine to be denied by Satan was the doctrine of God's judgment. You will not surely die, hisses the crafty, lying serpent to the man and the woman. It was the lie which sealed the deal of deception after which Eve became convinced that the forbidden tree was good for food, was a delight to the eyes, and was desired to make one wise. 
by seeming to remove the threat of judgment and promising that Eve would become like God, Satan entices Eve to eat. The fruit becomes her single desire. And as James says, then desire. When it conceives, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, while the threat of judgment has been called into question, the judgment still remains. As much as the world wishes to deny God's judgment and live as though there is no judgment, God is always faithful to his word. Always. He had given Adam a command with a warning and Adam quickly discovered that God upholds his word. Furthermore, God's commandment has been transgressed and therefore God has been offended. And God in his perfect holiness and righteousness would not and could not sit idly by and allow this offense. I want you to hold that thought. I will come back to it in a moment. So judgment comes and it comes swiftly. After God questions Adam and Eve and after their blame-shifting excuses, the line of questioning abruptly ends and the pronouncement of judgment ensues. The sentencing begins. First to the serpent, the deceiver and the originator of the sin. Next to the deceived one, Eve. And finally to Adam who sinned, as we said a couple of weeks ago, with his eyes wide open, full of the knowledge that what he was doing was in violation of what God had commanded. So let us examine the pronouncement of judgment on each of these. And I want us to notice a couple of things as we do this. First, I want us to notice how the judgment is specific to the nature of the offense that each committed. The judgment is specific to the nature of the offense that each committed. As one commentator notes, God does not render judgment arbitrarily or capriciously. In other words, God's judgment is not random. It is not impulsive or rash. It is not, with, it is not without rhyme and reason. And so we will notice here that each judgment corresponds and is appropriate to the nature of the offense. Secondly, I want us to notice that the the pattern that this judgment takes. For each, there is a divine penalty given and a defeat is declared. Each has a divine penalty given and a defeat is declared. So first, the serpent. And I want us to note up front that it is the serpent who is named here because the devil's instruments share the devil's punishments as the great Matthew Henry notes, but it is the one the serpent represents who is truly being addressed. Scripture is not implying here that serpents once had legs. The state of the serpent has not changed, just as we will see the state of Eve's submission to her husband has not changed, just as we will see the state of Adam's working the ground has not changed. All of these things were this way before the fall. What changes is the nature of their condition. Each is corrupted by the fall. 
So the snake is always slithered on its belly, but God, drawing attention to the characteristics of snakes, gives new significance to this feature and uses it to accentuate the divine penalty. And so here it is. And notice again the correspondence between the offense and the penalty. Because the serpent was crafty, he is now cursed. Because he has deceived Eve into eating the forbidden fruit, he shall now eat dust. And because he has led Eve into death, he will eat the dust all the days of his life, which points to his own coming death. But let's push a little further into this divine penalty. We might miss this, but we shouldn't. Eating dust is not simply about the proximity of the serpent's mouth to the ground. Eating dust was a figure of speech to denote personal humiliation. For instance, in Micah 7, verses 15 through 17, speaking of the response of the ungodly to God's power states this. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. Like the crawling things of the earth, they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. And they shall be in fear of you. Eating dust is about being brought low, about being humbled, about being brought into submission. In his pride, Satan incited a rebellion against God and was cast from heaven. And in the garden, Satan exalted himself above man, seeking to destroy that which God had created. God's judgment now is that Satan will be put in his place, both by God and by man. Eating Dust doesn't just point to humiliation and subjugation, though. It points to the grave. One who is dead eats dust. And look at what comes next in verse 15. God announces the serpent's defeat. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The serpent was instrumental in the undoing of the woman in her descent into sin and death. And now there will be animosity between the woman and the snake and between the woman's offspring and the serpent's offspring. And the text says that the serpent will wound the woman's offspring, but will in turn meet his violent end. While he will be limited in his attack, only able to strike the heel, he will receive a fatal blow to the head. Dearly beloved, this is not merely a fantastical story made up in an attempt to explain why snakes bite people and why people kill snakes. It isn't simply describing why we find snakes to be vile and disgusting creatures. It's telling us, rather, about the lifelong struggle that persists in the generations to come between Eve's descendants and the evil one. In his spiritual descendants, the children of the devil, all those who follow him in his rebellion against God and his people. 
our animosity for reptile snakes is but a symbol of our spiritual struggle with evil. But the serpent is told here of his final destruction, which he has brought about by his treachery in the garden. The serpent has won victory there over Eve, but his triumph would not be the last word. His evil schemes would come to an end with Eve's seed claiming ultimate victory. Hold that thought. I will come back to it in a moment. For now, we want to simply note that the divine penalty given to the serpent is that he will live a life of humiliation. And the defeat given to him is that his destruction will come by way of Eve's seed. Next, God addresses Eve, the one who has been deceived. And notice that God's words to her take a little softer tone than the words to the serpent and her husband. There is no occurrence of the word curse in these words to Eve as there was to the serpent and to Adam, nor is there a charge of offense to Eve. Notice that the serpent is charged with deception in verse 14. Adam is charged with disobedience in verse 17. But Eve's culpability, her guilt, came through deception. It was not willful as was the serpents and Adams in the same way. She is guilty though, nonetheless. So she receives judgment. So look at her penalty here in these verses. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. The central role of Eve's existence, childbearing, will become hard and pain-filled work. Not just giving birth, but the whole birthing process from start to finish will be wrought with anxiety and discomfort and pain. I would be a fool if I had to ask you women if you know of this difficulty. The angst of the possibility of infertility, the anxiety of carrying a baby, wondering constantly if the baby is developing normally in Worrying simultaneously about your own health. All the discomfort of carrying a baby to full term from nausea and indigestion to back and hip pain to not sleeping well. And the great pain of giving birth. That's what's being described here. But this process will also be the means by which she will be delivered. Don't miss this. Since it will be one of her descendants that brings about the ultimate end of the serpent, childbearing is pain-filled, but also the source of hope for salvation. Her seed will one day crush the head of the serpent. So while this whole childbearing process, all nine months of it, becomes a perpetual reminder of the sinful condition humans now face as a result of the fall, the pain of childbearing is also a signal of hope, of the defeat of Satan and evil, and therefore of redemption. In the midst of judgment, we see God's grace. He has not abandoned his beloved children. But this is not the full extent of her penalty, is it? It isn't just her role as a mother that is affected by her decision to eat of the fruit. It's also her role as a wife. 
You see, the nature of her sin was one of pride and independence and control. And she, in that moment of taking the fruit and eating and then giving it to her husband to eat, has flipped the created order of headship in marriage on its head. Adam was not caring for and protecting and leading his wife as God had ordained. Instead, he is standing idly by and allowing Eve to lead him. And now the consequence of her sin is that this desire to be in control continues into her married relationship, causing strain and discord between she and her husband. As Pastor John preached just a few weeks ago, Eve had been created with inequality of personhood and dignity and respect and worth. She was made just as much in the image of God as Adam and was to be valued just as much as Adam as an image bearer of God. But Adam and Eve were not created without differences. Rather, they were created uniquely male and uniquely female with Distinct qualities and characteristics that were to complement one another. This means, as John Piper states, the music of our relationships should not be the singing, the sound of singing in unison. It should be the integrated sound of soprano and bass, alto and tenor. It means that male and female will not try to duplicate each other, but will highlight in each other the unique qualities that make for mutual enrichment. This harmony that Piper speaks of with its peaceful cooperation and mutual helpfulness between man and woman requires each partner to live out their ordained gender roles, which includes the intended order of headship within the relationship. But in our fallen world, We automatically assume that headship implies inferiority. The greater is over the lesser. Friends, this is absolutely not. This is absolutely not what the Bible teaches or implies. Eve is under the headship of her husband who is called to love and serve and protect her. Even as she is called to respect his leadership. It isn't that Eve is of less value or worth or honor or intelligence. It is simply the dance between a husband and a wife that works best when there is but one clear leader. Hopefully some of you will remember this analogy that Pastor John used a few years ago when preaching on the complementary nature of the relationship between man and woman. A dance doesn't work if both parties are trying to lead. Even if the dance is between equally talented and accomplished dancers, right? It turns into a hot mess real quick. A power struggle where toes are stepped on and partners are tripped up. It is anything, it is anything but a graceful gliding across the dance floor as one entity That is a choreographed dance, the way it is intended to be. So in God's wisdom, he gave Adam the tremendous responsibility of leading this dance. And hear me, it requires of him to be selfless, loving, patient, compassionate, 
sure-footed on the foundation of God's word. But sin corrupted God's good design. And the consequence of Eve's sin was that she would now desire control in her relationship with her husband. She, in her pride, was tempted not to submit herself to God or anyone else. She wanted to determine what was best for herself. And in her deprived nature, she would seek to overpower and subdue her husband. And in his deprived nature, he would sometimes seek to relinquish his leadership to his wife and would other times seek to dominate his wife as though she were not a fellow image bearer of God and could be exploited for his own personal desires. And I believe that we have seen this scenario play out ever more clearly in recent times with all the all too many news stories of men who have misused their positions of leadership or physical strength in abominable ways to exploit and abuse women, leading to this Me Too movement. But while it isn't fashionable to talk about because we are very sensitive and rightly so to victim shame, we are fully aware that sinful women know exactly how to subdue sinful men and gain the upper hand. The reality of our sinful fallen world is that there is mass confusion about God-ordained gender roles. Sin's Eve's sin is bearing its fruit with the rampant feminization of men, a tidal wave of homosexuality, an epidemic of divorce, and a shameful increase in domestic abuse and violence. Scripture has a word for that. Into this confusion, the Apostle Paul speaks to the church the words of Ephesians 5, wives. Submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her. It is a call for those who are in Christ to live as those who have been reconciled and redeemed and restored to right marital relations. Church, how are we doing at this? Anyhow, what the judgment means here for Eve and all that follow is that there will no longer be effortless, peaceful union between husband and wife. Rather, there will be a struggle for power and leadership But the husband's leadership role has not changed, as Paul shows in Ephesians 5. And this is a word of defeat spoken to Eve. As much as she may try, she cannot eliminate God's intended order for headship within a marriage. This is her defeat. And notice how judgment has touched two of her primary roles as mother and wife, meaning that in the midst of some of life's greatest blessings, Marriage and children, the woman would serve most clearly the painful consequences of her rebellion from God. And Adam would suffer a similar fate, right? God addresses Adam, decisively rejecting Adam's attempt to shift the blame and play the victim. Look at all the second person singular pronouns because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. 
These are not y'alls, y'all. They are clearly addressing Adam as an individual. Adam had been assigned a leadership role in his marriage, which he, as we have already stated, relinquished in passive self-interest, listening to or obeying his wife, as the Hebrew says here. The result is that just as the woman's punishment struck at the deepest root of her being a wife and a mother, the man's strikes at the innermost nerve of his life. His work, his activity, provision for substance. So what is the penalty that corresponds to his offense? God begins, cursed is the ground because of you. Cursed. God is not putting a hex on the ground, by the way. He's not bewitching it or putting a magical or mystical spell on it. What does it mean that something is cursed? Well, it's the opposite of blessed. To bless in Hebrew is to put someone or something under God's protection and favor. To curse then is to remove someone or something from God's protection and favor. Without God's protection and favor, the ground becomes wild and stubborn. And now Adam's work becomes marked by toil and pain. No longer is the ground his servant being blessed by God. Rather, it becomes his enemy. His work is no longer simply work, it is labor. In pain does he labor, just as Eve in childbearing. This is sin's burden. Some of you in this room know the toil of working the ground. The greatest toil some of us face in eating from the plants of the field is waiting in line at Brookshire's. But all of us, all of us know the frustration of our work. And this is really what the curse is about. The world is not as it should be. There is much brokenness and heartache. Even if we love what we do, whether it's caring for patients as a medical professional or teaching students as a professor or designing a structure as an architect or engineer or homeschooling your children as a stay-at-home mother, our days are filled with frustrations and irritations and disappointment and weariness. All who attempt to produce in this world are met with thorns and thistles. And this continues, till you return to the ground. It never stops until in dust you return. And here is Adam's defeat. The judgment that God had warned Adam of, death. Adam is told here that he would return to the ground from which he has been taken. It wasn't that Eve would not also die as a result of her sin, but Adam is the direct recipient of this death sentence because it was to him that God gave the command and it was he who bore the greater blame for his conduct in the garden. So he was taken from the ground and now must return to the ground, which is a reversal of the creation process. It is a reversal of his God-given state, which is as a living being. It's no wonder then why death seems so unnatural, even though it is inevitable for all of us. But even with this final defeat, notice here that it isn't Adam who is cursed. The serpent is cursed for his role. And even though God is harsher on Adam than on Eve, it is not Adam who is cursed, but the ground. 
And we see God's grace here, which leads us to the final two verses of our passage. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was mother of all, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. If you haven't picked up on the hints of God's grace throughout this judgment, I hope it is becoming much clearer here in these final two verses. Adam finally names his wife, this woman God has given to him, Eve, the mother of all living. Isn't it interesting that immediately upon receiving this death sentence, Adam names his wife the mother of all living? If human life is to continue as God has indicated it would with the mention of Eve's childbearing, then it is in Eve's body that all human life will find its source. But there's also been this prophecy that her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. In Eve will not just be the survival of the human race, but the victory over death. And Adam... Notice it, Adam has picked up on the hope that God has offered them and has placed his faith in it. And so God now kills an animal and clothes Adam and Eve. For those of you like me who have taken the life of an animal, perhaps this, ber- this verse doesn't, doesn't bear much weight. So let me reframe it for you. Adam had made loincloths out of fig leaves because he recognized how unprecedented it was to take life. But sin could not be covered with leaves, only with pain and blood and life. From first sin to the last, the track of the sinner is marked with blood. It was made apparent that sin was a real and deep evil and that by no easy and cheap process could the sinner be restored. And so God takes the initiative and provides what only God could provide, an adequate covering, which is both a recognition of their sin and an act of grace pointing forward to a better atonement, a more sufficient sacrifice which would cover all of their sin. And so if you didn't see it before, do you see it now? Dearly beloved, this is the first preaching of the gospel here in Genesis 3. Write it down, memorize it. Even in the midst of judgment and curses, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This isn't offspring plural, by the way. It is singular and it is masculine. He will crush your head. And as we move through the scripture narrative, this promise becomes fuller and clearer. For instance, in Numbers 20, 21, where we find a curious story, God's people, Israel, were dying from the bites of what? Venomous snakes, which had been sent to them due to their sin. And the Lord tells Moses to make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. Here are the words of one who would centuries later be born of a woman. Born in the line of those who would receive the promise. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And the next verse is this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Do you see it? Jesus is the offspring prophesied in Genesis 3. Do you understand that he knew himself to be the antidote to the venom of the serpent? Do you get that just as Moses lifted an image of a serpent, the symbol of sin that Jesus Christ too would be lifted up, that he would bear our sins in his body on the tree, that he would be Sin, he would be made sin for us. The one who knew no sin became sin for you and for me. He redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse. And his all-sufficient sacrifice provided an atonement for our sin, gave to us by grace a covering of righteousness. Jesus Christ was struck by Satan. He received the fullness of the venom on the cross, but through his death and resurrection, he swallowed up sin and death and arose to crush Satan's head. And the apostle Paul tells us that all who are in Christ participate with Christ in this fatal blow to Satan. In his conclusion to the letter to the Romans, he writes, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is the gospel. It's the good news. Friends, we're not abandoned to sin and death. But here's the part of the gospel that's so often missed. Yes, God has sent his son to defeat sin and death and evil, to make an atonement for our sin, to restore us to right relationship with himself, to bring us into his everlasting kingdom of peace and joy untarnished by sin and death. And yes, he does all of this because he loves us and cares for us as the prize of his creation. But I want you to hear this. He does this more. He does this more for his sake. For the sake of his name, in his righteousness, in his justice, in his holiness. For the sake of his own glory, God seeks to restore his good creation. The great Charles Spurgeon rightly directs our attention away from ourselves and to God Almighty when he stakes, perhaps, however, by thus obliquely giving the promise, that is directly promising the serpent that his head would be crushed, rather than directing this promise to Adam and Eve, the Lord meant to say, not for your sakes do I do this, O fallen man and woman, nor for the sake of your descendants, but for my own name and honor's sake, that it would be not profaned and blasphemed among the fallen spirits. I undertake to repair this mischief which has, caused, which has been caused by the tempter that my name and my glory may not be diminished. 
We were made for the glory of God. We have been redeemed for the glory of God. And I think that we would do well to see the implication of this truth. Mercy given for God's sake is not only humbling to us, but we should grasp and accept that it is more sure than any favor which could be promised to us for our own sake. Our trust is in God's sovereignty and holiness. Our hope is in his glory. This is our sure foundation, our strong foundation. And this is the hope that we have for this Advent season. As we await the return of our Messiah who will come to finally put an end to the great serpent, the devil. And we hope for God's glory to be revealed in its fullness where all will be set right and every sad thing will become untrue knowing that his glory is for our good. Dearly beloved, we wait in this hope for glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray that your glory would come. We pray that Christ, oh Christ, that you would come into our morning and night and darkness, that you would bring the light of life and love and peace and joy. Lord, we thank you that you have redeemed us by the blood of your dear son, Jesus Christ. who took our sins in his body on the tree, that we might live for righteousness, that we might die to sin. Lord, may that be so for us. May that be true. May we place our faith in that alone. For we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Nicene Creed. Dearly beloved, in whom do you believe? We believe in one God and Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, 
who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen.